the failure to act with sufficient ambition to avert the climate catastrophe will be the greatest moral failure of our time. Making changes takes courage, and if we don't change things, we won't have a future. We need a president who respects science, who understands that the damage from climate change is already here. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Zero Carbon East Off. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbonista. This is Series 2, The Manifesto. I'm Ian Collins. It's as if we were only here a couple of days ago. Back now in our usual place on a Friday. Once again, we crack the green egg and see what savoury delights are on this week's environmental agenda. It's as busy as ever. I can tell you that much. The man with a conch is Dale Vince, often described as the accidental businessman, the environmental entrepreneur. Morning to you, Dale. Yeah, morning, Ian. Um, let's start with a question because I liked this one. Uh, Richard in Australia, it's interesting that there's always that moment, isn't there? Our ears prick up when we realize the international nature of this uh, podcast. We get a lot of comment from the States and now we've gone down under as well. Yeah. And this, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I don't know what to say. There isn't much to say because I haven't even said what he's got to say yet. So that's what I was waiting for. This is, (laughs) it tricked me. It was a big build up for Richard in Australia. It doesn't say whereabouts, but he says, I emigrated here a few years back. So I'm assuming he's a Brit abroad. Um, Having done so, it now drives me nuts that we have no proper renewable energy suppliers like you. Uh, Please set up Ecotricity Australia. I'll be a customer and I'll be an employee too. There you go. Nice one. I'm going to run it for you as well. <laughs> We've got our foundation stone in Australia yeah. right there then. Yeah. One customer, one staff member. What uh, is going on? Because like, you often hear that Aussie credentials on matters environmental are not that great. Is that is that an urban myth? Is that unfair? Uh, I don't think it is, no. I mean, certainly if you look at the government of Australia, it's not unfair. I, I don't know about the general population. I've never been there. But people I know that have been there say it's a little bit like America. Without the Americans, you know, they drive big American cars and, and have a fairly high consumption lifestyle. And I think, Ian, it was just a couple of episodes ago that you were telling me that they have the highest per capita carbon footprint in the world. Actually. That's right. Yeah, that came up, didn't it? One of the yeah. stories, too. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think it must be fair, actually, given all of that to say, yeah, yeah. They're, 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 not, they're not doing enough down there. No, I heard somebody say quite recently that what, what's happened in Australia is that they've kind of been caught out by the fact that they're quite an outdoor sets of people, obviously, because the weather is mostly good. It's a big place. It's got a small population relative to its size. And there's been a sense, a false sense of security that they're already ticking boxes because they live half the time in the outdoors. So how can they be terrible polluters? And I think that's in some respects, from what I'm reading, has kind of caught them by surprise a little bit. It's almost, you know, we're, we're the great outdoor people. You know, We don't do bad stuff. Yeah, and I'm reminded of Crocodile Dundee, the film, and and a and a great quote there. And I'm thinking of Australians being used to hot weather and stuff, and uh, yeah. and thinking, yeah, climate change, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Uh, the bit in the film where he says, "Call that a knife," and then he yeah. pulls out this much That's bigger right. knife. You know, call that climate change. I can imagine Australians thinking, yeah. call, "Call that hot." I don't know. You yeah. know, but oh, we can deal with that. Yeah. Come but back actually, in two decades. Yeah, but actually they've had a series of biblical scale disasters, haven't they? In the last 12 months only, really droughts and, and dust storms and all kinds of problems. I think, you know, Australia's being hit pretty bad right now by the climate crisis. Hopefully that caused them to wake up. But I mean, there's no sign of it yet in the government there. Uh, let's go to this story. Climate tipping points could topple like dominoes, uh, according to scientists. Ice sheets, um, Ocean currents at risk of climate tipping points can destabilize each other as the world heats up, leading to a domino effect 
with severe consequences for humanity, according to risk analysis. I mean, it does feed in to an extent, doesn't it, to the, the, the kind of ongoing narrative tell us something we didn't know. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting that each time, you know, another group of scientists, another group of experts and analysts look at this, they, they arrive at this same rather grim conclusion. Yeah, it's interesting that they arrive at that through analysing data and modelling and stuff like that. And, you know, I arrive at that through just, uh, I don't know, you might call it common sense. It seems obvious that if you can have, if there are half a dozen possible tipping points, that any one of them could trigger another one. Think of it like a positive feedback loop or cycle, you know, yeah. it, that that just seems obvious to me that that could happen. But they, they've come at it from a data and modeling point of view, which is more credibility than my, you know, random common sense thinking. Uh, but, you know, it's kind of stuff that we don't want to hear. Uh, because it's a it's a doomsday kind of scenario, and what we really need to be engaging with is is how we avoid the climate crisis. You know, and I read a story uh, yesterday actually about the carbon price in Europe having doubled, and in fact, it's ten times higher now than it was just three years ago. Wow. When, when it was a stupidly low five pounds a ton or five euros, actually, it's now at 50, uh, which is incredible, the highest it's ever been. And I read this really interesting article about what's happening there. The scheme, uh, the uh, emissions trading scheme of Europe only covers half of Europe's emissions. And they're looking now to extend it to all emissions and to actually uh, right size it for the Paris uh, commitment of one and a half degrees. And that shouts to me solution. This is how we do it. Yeah, Create yeah. a carbon market, uh, put everything into it and, and restrict the emissions of every sector through that market. And this, this could be coming soon. And I, I like that kind of story better than the, uh, the dominoes to disaster. Yeah, because the, I mean, the dominoes to disaster, I, I guess, is just simply giving us the, the, the data and say, you know, they looked at interactions between ice sheets and the Atlantic Gulf Stream and things like that, the Amazon rainforest. And you get all the data and that's, in, that's interesting to see. But as you say, what we really need is solutions. And if they're active solutions, as you just described, that's got to be the best way, right? Yeah, definitely. And I read another interesting story. We talked on the last episode about the oil companies, how the Dutch courts had ruled against Shell and how... Uh, shareholders of ExxonMobil had kicked a few board members out and replaced them with activists. I read an article today about that activist shareholder uh, that, that triggered that, a very tiny organization managing about $160 million worth of funds. Yep. And um, the guy leading it said, look, we're not doing this because we're environmentalists. We're doing this because it's good business sense. And that's really interesting because uh, he, he thinks that we can fix capitalism by refocusing it on a slightly longer term view that says actually burning fossil fuels is destroying value in companies and in economies uh, and that's really interesting quite exciting yeah. actually that that could happen so it, it's ultimately a, a economic disaster to continue pursuing that line exactly which is, which is you know, exciting and uh, brilliant all at the same time yeah well i picked up a story on cnn as well but where the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, admits that climate change could ignite another financial crisis, which kind of dovetails into that point in a way. True that, yeah. Uh, this comes in from, uh, I like, it's quite a general question from Dan on Twitter, who says, Dale, what keeps you motivated? <laughs> I don't know. I think it might be my nature, uh, you know, kind of persistent, obsessive nature, probably. Yeah. Does that happen when you wake So when you wake up in the morning, is your brain already kind of engaged in, you know, what, what can be done next? What do we need to do? We're on a mission. We're on a journey. Is that sort of sense, is that template always around? Yeah, I think I'm always looking for other things that can be done, dots that can be joined up, ways to communicate, have impact, 
things that can be changed, things that I can influence. Yeah, just that. Well, it's interesting because when you, I mean, in the 90s, when you, you, you built your first windmill, I know we've, we've talked about this before, but not, not for a while. I mean, it's, it's easy to forget how kind of, and I use the word weird kindly, but at the time, you know, who the hell is this bloke on a hill all hours putting a bloody windmill up? You know, what there would have been that view. And you, but clearly you somehow had a focus on that and thought, no, I'm building this. Uh, and then it went on to power shed loads of <laughs> areas and homes and the like. Yeah, somebody reminded me this week, actually, that wind energy back then in the 90s was viewed as a as a cranky thing, you know, the kind of like black magic, of, wasn't it? Yeah, academics and hippies were the people that are interested in that. You know, it was weird and and compounded by that. I was like some traveler guy living in a trailer on a hill with you know no money, experience, cred, anything, and and that was a powerful kind of anti combination, if you like. You know, me and this crazy concept of wind energy. I'm going, come on, you know, I can do this here, and people are like, oh my god, you can do what, and and you can do that, and uh, yeah, but that was a long time ago now, twenty five years. Yeah. But did you think then, oh, one day I'll have a big empire, um, and they'll be <laughs> yeah. a, a huge green energy company? Not at all. No, I just want to build one windmill. Wow. And, and then everything else was, well, I use the word domino effect again, but in it for a different reason. But it, I guess something like that kicks in. And before you know it, you know, your ecotricity aboard. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess it's been, you know, one step after another one kind of for us innovation after another. And we went from focusing on energy back in the 90s as the biggest single cause of climate change to adding in transport and food as the second and third biggest. And that became the focus of our group. And, you know, so we built the Nemesis, grew the electric highway um, and uh, got involved in vegan and plant based uh, advocacy. And then finally, Forest Green, which embodies all of those things. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, I said at the beginning, the accidental businessman. I'm always, it's always amazing when you see one of those kind of YouTube videos of stockbrokers on Wall Street who say, hi, I'm Dwayne Smithers, and I came up with an idea. And then the guy explains how he had this whole vision sorted out. You could do a version of that. Say, hi, I'm Dale Vince, and I don't know what the f*** happened. Uh, <laughs> that would maybe, <laughs> maybe arrived in the same place, but by very different methods and routes. Yeah, that's right. And I explain in the book, cue the bugle if you still got it. Um, how actually, oh, there it is. How I came to form some of the different parts of ecotricity, you know, by accident, by happenstance, serendipity. There's a whole kind of bunch of different reasons yeah, like, behind behind the things that came to be. And, yeah. uh, one of the, you know, there's a lot of sad and troubling areas, of course, of the overarching narrative that we we discuss here. But when you look at some of the wildlife stories, I, there's one I clocked today. Uh, puffins, bluebells, and bumblebees are three of the UK species at risk by climate change. Mm. I don't want to think of a world without bees, to be honest. <laughs> no. I mean, we lost 97% of our wildflower meadows in the last 50 years. That's insane. We've got 3% left. We've lost 90% of our seagrass as well, which you know we don't get to see. It's just offshore by a few hundred yards, but it's a really important habitat. And we, you know, it's 90% gone. Yeah, well, this is the WWF that have looked at this report, and they've said that the future of those species, and that's just three that I mentioned there, is dependent on the outcome of COP26. So mm. it shows you what's resting on this. So mm. a, a bunch of you know powerful suits sitting around a table, their decisions will, will affect the, the future of a puffin. Who'd have thought? <laughs> I think actually that's that's a mistake to see it that way. I mean, maybe it's useful to grab a headline and get attention. Yeah, I guess so. There's much more riding on COP26, and COP26 itself won't save puffins. We have an awful lot to do to save an awful lot of things, including puffins. Yeah. 
I was going to say, can we just say for puffin lovers out there, we, we do like puffins. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not my favorite bird, I have to say. But I couldn't eat a whole one. Definitely. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, Christina on Twitter says, um, I started listening after hearing you on talk radio with Mike Graham and Ian. Um, do climate deniers and doubters dent your enthusiasm? No, not at all. I think they, they probably fire you up, don't they? Yeah, probably. Yeah, they cause me just to kind of, uh, uh, yeah, fire up a bit. I suppose you know, push back. Um, that's that's my nature as well, actually, to react uh, to to adversity and and that kind of stuff in that way, and just to try harder. You know, uh, and and speak the truth. You know, talk about data. You know, the facts are outstanding. It's an unarguable case. You know, the impact that we're having on the world through the two really big bad habits we have burning fossil fuels and eating animals yeah. and, and that's an unarguable case that we should stop that absolutely but, yeah yeah I, I i noticed that um that there's there's a body of thought just to turn to this story a growing number of doctors and, and healthcare workers are, are turning to climate activism to urge essentially our political masters global leaders to declare it a, a public health emergency and to look at it that way hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, they're they're all interlinked again, uh, as per chapter one of the uh, of the book. You know, the the climate crisis itself isn't just about global temperatures. Um, you know, it is about human health, and it's fueled by the burning of fossil fuels, which is polluting the air and killing people directly just from air pollution. You know, and our diets, uh, our animal intensive diets, are stripping the world of habitats and wildlife, but killing us also through the impact on human health. It's all intertwined, and it's just two things to stop fossil fuels and animal farming. Yeah. I mean, do you think that message is – is that a message too far? I mean, it's about seducing not the naysayers, but people who think, you know, what's this all about? If, you know, a bunch of people come along and say that this is a public health emergency, does that scare people? Does it bring people on side? I think for some people it'll be a wake up and it will worry them and for other people it won't, you know. But I do think the important thing here is, uh, you know, I talk about what we need to give up, but it's important actually to talk about what we gain as well from doing this, you know, the green economy, jobs, industries, clean air, clean water, the return of wildlife, uh, you know, and a really truly sustainable economy. And when we talk about green living, it's really important that we present it as an improvement on the old way of doing things. It mustn't be about giving stuff stuff up because people tend to think that's what it is it's about living a life of denial it's the opposite of that absolutely um this one in from jane who says how are plans coming on to get your vegan products into other retailers uh, Ocado is an occasional treat rather than the supermarket of choice in our house is that a hard process uh, it, it's a long one, I would say. What we're finding is the the stuff we're making is is popular. So, you know, we get it to the the tasters or the buyers of different uh, shops, and and they like it. Um, and uh, we're hopefully not far away from launching our sausages uh, into a a national chain of a thousand shops. Uh, wow! I won't name them because that might be that might be wrong of me yeah. until the deal is done. Uh, but that's that's very exciting. The sausage itself is very new, but um, pretty exceptional actually and uh, yeah we're hoping to get into some other supermarkets on top of that as well it's, yeah, it's just a gradual process really i suppose but the um big exciting news for me there with the devil's kitchen is we're about to upscale it so at the moment we can make uh, enough burgers and balls that that would replace three cows by body weight every day seriously absolutely but we're about to upscale to be able to replace 30 cows every day that's a small herd of cows yeah, yeah. Not, not needed in the food chain every day but you see, that's the kind of tangible uh, information I think people want. 
if yeah. you say, look, there's this, and it stops this, and it makes sense, uh, there's no argument that anybody could throw in, then I, I think people react to that positively. Hmm. Yeah. Communication is key. Yeah. How, how we talk to uh, people and, and, uh, and what we tell them. It's, it's interesting just to go back to the sausage, because I've told this story to you before, but the, uh, I, I think the sausage is one of the easiest things to replicate in terms of you know, coming up with alternatives. Um, in that, there's so much other stuff that goes into sausages um, and flavorings and spices that you know, most of what you're eating actually isn't the taste of meat anyway. Yeah, true that. And, and I think, I mean, while I would agree with you, uh, it's perhaps ironic that when you look at the world of vegan or plant-based food, I think that sausages is the most disappointing area. I don't think anybody makes a great sausage. In fact, I think sausages are where the most awful products still exist. You know, it wasn't that long ago that veggie burgers were a pretty grim experience. They're not now. They're fantastic. But yeah. I, I just don't think anybody's nailed the sausage yet. What about like the vegan sausage roll and things like that? Well, it's all right, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Very salty. And kind of pasty and fatty and yeah do you know what i mean it's much like a sausage roll yeah <laughs> yeah they've mimicked it rather well but you know i think we can do better than that we can do better than that with plants you know? i mean the mimicry thing is is was really my point and I, I i mentioned this when i had a new year's eve party uh, a load of years back and we bought a you know those little cocktail sausage rolls the small ones yeah um, went into a shop and bought like three bags sort of 50 in a bag um, got home and realized that it was the vegetarian option that we got. And I just thought, not this. I'm not going to go back. We'll have veggie sausage rolls. You're the accidental vegetarian. Yeah, here. stuck them in the oven. Um, and sausage rolls are always the first things to go at a kind of buffy setup and just lob them on the table, 150 of these vegetarian sausage rolls. And not a single person spotted that they were vegetarian. Yeah, I mean, literally not one person. They yeah. delved into them and, and enjoyed the the feast that it was <laughs> no one realized there was no meat there yeah i think uh, i mean I, I have the same experience and, and view actually if you if you label food as having something missing from it then you immediately set up barriers and preconceptions for people if you just you know present yeah. food uh, we we experience this at forest green you know although we're famously vegan we don't label our stuff vegan this vegan that you know it's just what it is mm. and uh, when people try it they love it well, I, I did just that with the, the Linda McCartney stuff like 20 years ago, um, eating the, I mean, it's not everybody's cup of tea and I don't know where they're at now, but you know, the meat, her meatless pies and the like, I mean, the range wasn't perfect, but I can remember me and a mate trying these thinking this is like a magic trick. Yeah. No, I remember the pie and I was a fan of it, but the yeah, sausages, right. yeah, not the sausages. <laughs> yeah. She never nailed the sausages really. I don't think so. I don't think anybody's nailed the sausage yet. And you were, you remind me I've, I've eaten a lot of vegan vegetarian sausages. Um, and the ones that are the most grim are the ones that have gristle in them. They mimic the gristle uh, oh, experience. Oh my, oh, my God. Why would you do that? That's essentially just a bit of old testicle, isn't it? You know, in an actual essence of eyeball. Man alive. That's just Lips, ears, and bums, as we used to yeah, say. Yeah, it's, it's precisely that. You know, chew on this sphincter. It's not a, not, not a nice way to pass the day. Um, on that point, um, let's finish with this story. I love this story. Uh, Ecotricity is sponsoring the Climate Clock in Glasgow. Didn't know about this. Yeah, and I think that goes out today, maybe or tomorrow. I'm not really sure. And uh, countdown to COP26 or the no, it's, the no, it's not. Time. No, it's, it's actually yeah, it's that. It's countdown to the. Um, 
kind of like the end of the world, but it's a bit more positive than that. So they've got it's a, it's a two piece clock and positive um, version of the end of the world. I like this. I think it is, yeah. Because on the left hand side is a countdown to how long we've got left to reach a point where we can stay under one and a half degrees, so get to zero carbon. Yep. And at the moment, it's like six years, 211 days or something like that. And that clock moves all of the time. Uh, and on the right-hand side of the clock, you've got the uh, the counter of renewable energy in the world. I think it's currently running at 12%, but with about yep. six decimal places. And the six decimal places continually ticking over. So as renewable energy grows we'd expect to see the uh, length of time we have to get to zero carbon grow. Um, so it is a countdown to the deadline by which we must get to zero carbon. And at the same time, it's a count up showing our progress towards that. So I kind of like it. It's your face on the face, as it were. <laughs> no, it's not. Not quite. No, there is no face. It's no. digital. Okay. Uh, yeah, well, it should be for that, shouldn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. get confusing yeah. with hands and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I've worked it out. Uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, Dale, we'll speak next week. Yeah, brilliant. See you next week, Jim. Have a cracking week. Don't forget, of course, to follow this podcast from your podcast provider so that you get each new episode automatically. Leave a review there as well. If you want to get in touch, you can email your comments, zerocarbonista at ecotricity.co.uk. A really important bit. Do follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince or facebook.com slash dalevince. Zero carbon east off.